occasion. Father, would you strengthen us in our faith now as we study the word together? Clear our minds and quiet our hearts. I'm confident, Lord, that there are very burdened people here today. Would you help us to cast our cares upon you and know that you careth for us? That you are an ever-present help in time of trouble. Father, for the skeptic that might be here today, would you allow the word of God to come alive today? Challenge their thinking. Open their eyes and their hearts to the reality of who you are and who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And for faithful believers in Christ today, Lord, would you just strengthen us in our faith? Help our unbelief and grow our faith to yet a higher level. Thank you for the ways that Matthew has recorded so concisely and clearly and yet thoroughly this great account. And Lord, even as we turn to Matthew for the last time in a number of years in our series, I thank you for the Gospel of Matthew. It's a long book and a lot of detail. And you've impacted our lives through it. Thank you most of all for our lovely Lord Jesus, his willingness to go to Golgotha and the cross. And thank you that he is the resurrection and the life and that the grave could not hold him. Encourage our hearts now, I pray, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. I wonder if you were asked uh, to share what might be the greatest moment of your life, what would you say? Early this morning, I checked the Fox News headlines on my phone, and I noticed there, at least as of about 5.30 this morning, 521 million of a lottery that hasn't been claimed yet. It's a single ticket. Maybe that person will find that uh, when they realize that they've won $521 million, they will say, it's the greatest moment of my life. Or maybe not. What's the greatest moment of your life? I was thinking about this with... uh, In the context of my life and my family, surely one of the great moments that comes quickly to my mind is a a beautiful, unseasonably warm, sunny February Saturday morning when Janet Parsons looked up at me and said, yes, I'll go for a walk around the pond with you. I didn't even know if she knew that I existed. What a great moment. But you know, when I really think about it, it it has to be, and I've shared this before, it has to do with our children and the adoption of both of our children, and particularly Jonathan at infancy from Berkeley Medical, where on Christmas morning, that young girl took that boy and put him in Janet's hands, and with a huge smile on her face, tears pouring down our faces, said, here you go. He's all yours. What a moment. What a moment. I don't know what you would share as to the greatest moment of your life, but I invite you to turn for the very last time in this series to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. 
And there we will finish and conclude with the great account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see what I believe has to be. It has to be the greatest moment that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary could have possibly ever experienced in their lifetime. Now let's put it in context. It has only been a little over 36 hours probably. Only a little over 36 hours that they have sat there by the cross and they have wept and their hearts have broken and their entire worlds imploded. You could say that the wheels came off. You could say that their life became a train wreck. Watching their Lord on the cross, these women, having, having nothing to explain this turn of events, and their lives came unglued. That was Friday afternoon. We've gone through Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday morning, parts of the nights, three days and three nights in the Jewish mind. And now it's at daybreak. It's where Matthew's going to pick up just a relatively brief account. Let's read Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, uh, let me just comment. Um, Evidently, they didn't know that a guard had been set. Evidently, they didn't realize that a seal of wax had been put around the stone to be able to tell if anybody tampered with it. They just knew that their Lord was dead and he was in the tomb and they had spices and They loved him and they grieved and they, we know from other accounts, talked about how they might get the stone away from the tomb so that they could add these burial spices. They loved their Lord so much that they just didn't want anybody to smell his body decaying. And behold, verse 2 says, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They were just struck down in fear and panic. It overwhelmed them. Evidently, their blood pressure shot up so fast that the physiological response was for grown strong men to just pass out and keel over and fall down on the ground. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly, I guess so, from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And here it is, verse 9, the greatest moment they could have ever experienced. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. They touched him. They knew it was him. It was a real physical body. It was their Lord Jesus. 
And you think about that. You think about from Friday to this early morning hour, and all of a sudden their brains do whiplash, trying to fathom the reality of what they're seeing. And behold, Jesus said to came met them and said, verse 9 again, greetings, and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The angels told the ladies they would see him. Jesus tells the ladies to tell the men that go to Galilee, there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. They knew exactly what had taken place. They told the chief priests, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. These elders and chief priests thought they could bribe anybody to do anything. They bribed Judas to betray him. They bribed the guards to lie about him. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You'll recall that... uh, Heading into our missions conference a few weeks ago, we finished Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, uh, through verse 20, and concluded our book that way, but we're backing up now just to pick up the first part of chapter 28 on Resurrection Sunday. All of the Gospels give an account of the resurrection. It's very interesting to take your time and read the, the Gospel accounts, compare the nuance of detail. I'm thinking particularly today on my heart today is particularly a person who might be a skeptic. A person who approaches Easter, maybe because your parents invited you to church today. Uh, Maybe uh, your girlfriend invited you to come. Maybe you're just, um, you're away at university now. You've come home for the weekend and you're now a sophomore and you're 19. And so you are very full of wisdom. And uh, you really know a lot now. And you're pretty sure that this is bogus. You're here because of your mom and you like chocolate, you know. And you're not afraid to help with the Easter egg hunt this afternoon with your little niece. So how are we to think about this story? Believers in the Lord Christ accept it as the word of God and it's true because it's in the word of God. I thought it might be helpful for us today And you might subtitle your message and jot it down under intro there on your notes. Six concepts for critical thinkers. Six concepts for critical thinkers. What I mean by that is to help us think a little bit critically about the text and and to just examine it from a couple different angles and, and ask ourselves, is it reasonable to accept this as living history as it was written to be intended to be taken? Matthew clearly and the gospel writers clearly wrote biographical history. It was in no way intended to be understood as mythological or subjective. It was an account. It was, for all practical purposes, eyewitness account. And yet many people have, along with the final verses of this passage on the resurrection, believed it to be some kind of a hoax and and they think that maybe it's viable that the body was stolen or 
Who knows? I mean, that story caught on enough that in verse 15 at the end, it says that this story has spread among the Jews to this day. This is, this is uh, several decades following the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ when Matthew wrote his account. At that time, people still propagated that story. So I thought it would be helpful for us to just kind of back away from the text and let's just look at it and let's just examine it together and, and let's just test it a little bit. Is it history or is it hoax? If it's history, it seems that it would bear up under some scrutiny. The first point, though, is a little bit different and it is this. It is, number one, the reality of the supernatural. When you approach this passage, I want to admit straight up front that if you are a naturalist... You won't like this story, nor will you believe this story. You see, if you haven't come to a place where you believe in the existence of of a creator God and this God of the Bible who created the world and created you and sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior, if you've denied God and you don't believe the scripture, then you're not going to believe this story. I completely understand that. And the first thing that I just wanted to recognize was that to, to understand this story and to believe this story, Matthew himself recognizes the involvement of the supernatural. Matthew's not trying to prove it scientifically. Matthew is stunned himself at the recognition of all of the supernatural events that have taken place. We've already seen this on Friday afternoon at the cross when the earth quaked, the rocks broke, the veil was rent. Jesus himself gave up his life. These are supernatural realities. So if you don't believe in the metaphysical, then you don't like this. If you're a naturalist, what I mean by this is that you're a naturalist. That is, you believe that anything believable has to be able to be proven scientifically. And if it cannot be proven scientifically or logically, you tend to reject it. So I wrote in the notes there, just a brief statement as we get started. In many ways, belief in a literal bodily resurrection is a worldview issue. The way you take this passage will have a lot to do with what your presuppositions are. What is your worldview? Anyone holding to a naturalistic worldview will automatically disregard the veracity of the resurrection account. And so I want you to know that I understand that maybe if that's you and you're a naturalist, you kind of think that what we did already here this morning is kind of funny. The choir worked for hours on a song about a guy raising from the dead. You people are nuts. Dead people don't rise. And Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote that song like 50 years ago that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You are weak people. You need this crutch of a Jesus. You need this crutch of a resurrection. What's up with you people? I mean, I think that you're really simple-minded. And you might even, if you know I have a fake tooth in front, say, Pastor Van, take your tooth out. Take your shoes and your socks off. You're already in West Virginia. You might as well be toothless barefoot in West Virginia because them's the kind of people that believe this is true stuff. At least on this side of the state. If you've been over to the west, western side of the state at the university, you know better. You just know better. So if you do not believe when you open this book where it says, in the beginning, God. If you don't believe that, you don't believe this. 
And let me say something else. Once you believe in the beginning God, this story is no problem. It's the kind of God we have. It's the kind of God we have. And with God, the angel told Mary when she questioned the reality that she would have a, a baby without knowing a man, the angel said to her, with God, nothing is impossible. So that's our starting point this morning. With God, nothing is impossible. And Matthew recorded it just the way it happened, and he knew that it was true. I think there's some other really interesting things for critical thinkers to examine here. One is, secondly, it's the believability of the women. You might not have thought about this before, but um, you need to recognize that women were, were low in the Jewish societal ladder. This was a man's world back here. Women were chattel, man. Women were property. We've come a long way, baby. The women back here, in fact, letter B, females were not even allowed as legal witnesses. If a woman saw a man commit a crime, she visibly saw him. She was there. She watched it happen. If a woman saw that and was brought into court... All right, And the woman saw that, that a man had committed a crime and she was brought into court and she testified against him and the man said, she's lying. They believed the man, not the woman. And they let him go. That's the mindset of this culture about women. So females were not allowed as legal witnesses. And so here's the point. Any legendary account would have certainly portrayed the male followers of Christ as discovering the empty tomb. Don't you think? I mean, I know that I can't prove it, but I'm just, I'm just for argument's sake pointing out that in our story, notice that it's story, after these supernatural events, let's go back to our text, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Oh, that, that's a supernatural event. An angel of the Lord, that's a metaphysical supernatural being came from heaven and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead. That's not so supernatural. That could happen. The angel then talks. Don't be afraid. He's not here. He is risen. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly. Tell his disciples. Okay, so it's Matthew lays it out in in a supernatural setting and then immediately enter in act two or scene two of the scene is women there and the angel tells the women, you go be the witnesses to the men and tell the men that it's true. Well, the men are going to look at the women and say, you're nuts. And in fact, they did. They thought it was nonsense. I believe it's Luke recorded for us. And I think it's Mark's account that says they did not believe and what did, what did Peter and John immediately do? The women said the tomb was empty. They ran and had to go look. Hmm. That's pretty manly, isn't it? The women said the tomb was empty. Ah, uh, let's go look. What don't you get about that sentence? I'll tell you what it is. You don't like it that women told you that it was empty. You think something's wrong with their eyes? You think they're just dreaming? They're so emotional. They're so wishful in their thinking. And so what I would suggest, and I'm not the only one that has brought this point out, it's not original with me, but the idea, letter C, is that any legendary account would have certainly portrayed the male followers of Christ discovering the empty tomb. I've already said that. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel is a, 
is a guy who got saved as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune back in the 70s. And he went to seminary. He became a pastor and an author. And he writes a lot of books that, that critique the thinking of the Bible and shows evidence for the reality and truthfulness and veracity of Scripture. He wrote this. The fact that women are the first witnesses to, to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. This shows that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what happened, even if it was embarrassing. And his point is, if you're Matthew, Mark, these guys that were there, Peter and John had anything to say with it, what would they do? They would conveniently forget the part in the story that the women were the first ones there and they would let it be known that they ran in and stepped inside the empty tomb and sure enough, there were the grave clothes folded up in the face napkin right there. And the men would have taken it over. They didn't manipulate the story. They just told it the way it was. It's history right there before your eyes. Thirdly, let's just comment about the absurdity of the conspiracy, verses 11 through 15. We've already read those verses. The the guard went into the city and the chief priests, these are the guards who had fainted when the angel comes and there was an earthquake then. Now, by the way, let me just remind you, if you let your eyes go over to verse 52, verse 52, verse 51 Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's a a pretty wow moment. Mom, Dad, Grandpa's here. (laughs) What I was thinking about was, and we pointed this out last week, It says, after his resurrection, they appeared. I think that this earthquake that we just read about in the top of verse 20, chapter 28, um, verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake. I think that, that Matthew compresses the events here in his writing and that as he lists on Good Friday that the earthquake, the temple curtain was torn, the rocks split, the tombs opened, I tend to believe, I can't prove it scripturally, but it makes sense to me that it was the earthquake of 28-2 that broke open the tombs, and it was immediately following the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the first fruits from the dead, that the believers in Jerusalem who had died rose from their dead and rose from their grave and walked into town and reconnected with their homes and their families. And I think it happened at this earthquake, and the guards are dead. We're talking, though, about the absurdity of the conspiracy and, and the guards go running into the chief priests and the elders and they make up this concocted lie that the disciples came and stole the body. One thing you need to be clear about is remember that when they went to, to appoint a guard to the tomb, this is at the end of chapter 27, um, when they went to Pilate, this is verse 62 if you want to put your eyes down on the page, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead and his last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. I think if you could hear Pilate's voice, he's being facetious. He's like, you got your own guards. Get out of my, go, go take your own guards and guard that place. He's dead. Why are you going to guard a dead body? Why are you worried about the disciples anyway? 
What you need to understand is that if it were Roman soldiers who had passed out and had allowed the stone to be rolled back, even though they could do nothing about it, it was a supernatural event. If it had been a Roman guard, part of the garrison there, they would have been executed for derelict of duty, regardless of it, whether it was their fault or not. You remember the earthquake in Acts when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi? And the Philippian jailer was ready to fall on his sword. There was an earthquake. Paul and Silas were in prison for preaching the gospel. And the earthquake, the prison doors broke open. The prisoners are all running. The chains break out of the stones and everything. And they're all free. And the prison, the, the guard was ready to fall on his soldier. Why? He'd rather kill himself than be killed. Probably crucified. And Paul talks him out of it. Goes to his house. Leads him to Christ and his family. That's the mindset. These are temple guards. They're not Roman guards. So they don't have the same set of rules. This is like the Coast Guard, not the Navy. (laughs) How many of you really think that the disciples at this time would go and roll back the stone, knock those guys out and steal the body? I mean, it's preposterous. When you realize where the disciples are and what condition they're in emotionally and mentally, I think that it is absurd. It defies the imagination to think that the disciples could have, under these circumstances, even attempted to pull off such a feat. And about 75% of all scholars agree with that statement. It just doesn't hold up to scrutiny that the disciples would have pulled this off and been able to keep the body hidden. Fourthly, The very availability of the body is an interesting concept for critical thinkers. How about the availability of the body? In verses 11 through 15, you have the account where the guards go to the elders and the chief priests and report to them everything that happened. Let your eyes go to verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. What did they tell the chief priests right there? You know what they told them? There was an earthquake. And then there was an angel, and the stone rolled back, and we passed out, and when we came to, nobody was there, and the body was gone. That's what they told them, all right? So one thing that I think is interesting is if they had the body, if they were playing games, and they're not going to make it, the enemies of Jesus are not going to make it look like he rose from the dead. We know that they did not have the body. We know that the grave was empty. The question is, why was the grave empty? How was the grave empty? I mean... They did not have the body or they would have produced it. This is, this is the great case of the dog ate my homework. You absolutely do not have your homework. The question is, why don't you have your homework? Because if you had your homework, you would be happy to wave your homework. If you had a body, you would be happy to wave that body around and make sure everybody. So the very enemies, we know that the tomb was empty because his enemies admit it. His enemies admitted, secondly, if they had the body, they would have produced it and shut down the launch of the church before it ever began. You do realize, don't you, that if they could have produced the dead body of our Lord Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be gathered here today. Apart from the resurrection of of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no resurrection. There is no other resurrection from the dead. There is no truth. We are of all people, Paul said, and we read it in our congregational scripture reading this morning. We are of all people most miserable. Fourthly, uh, that was fourthly, the availability of the body. Fifth, I want us to point to understand the importance of the eyewitness account. Let me illustrate this. Okay, number five, the locality of the eyewitnesses. Okay, so first of all, I want you to see in Matthew 28, 
that when the angel tells the women that he's not there, what does he tell them? He says, don't be afraid. I know you seek Jesus, verse 5. He's not here. He's risen. I want you to come see. Come see the place where he lay. And then he says, go tell his disciples to go to Galilee and there they will see him. You see, it's one thing to hear about something. It's another thing to see it, isn't it? So, you might not know it, but I'm a big Baltimore Orioles fan. I've kind of kept that secret. I'm making this up right now. And I decided that I should go to opening game. I said to Janny, baby, let's go to the ball game. She said, yes, you know I'm making this up. (laughs) And we went to Camden Yard this week. And I'm telling you, church, it's the greatest thing in my life ever happened this week. I'm sitting in the stands. I had pretty good seats right above the Baltimore dugout. And uh, what's his name? Buck Showalter? Is that his name? Buck was having a bad day. I don't know what they're... Did they play at Camden this week? Don't worry about the details. I'm at Camden opening day this week. Things are going bad. They're down two to nothing. It's now uh, the last part of the game, the bottom of the ninth. We got our last bats. There's two outs and Buck is beside himself. He's almost gotten kicked out of the game. He comes out of the dugout and I'm telling you this happened. I'm telling you. He turned and he looked and he pointed right at me and he said, come here. <laughs> he handed me a bat and he said, go bat right now. We got, we got a walk. We got a man on base. We got two outs. Hit a home run and get us out of this mess. And I did it. <laughs> it's the greatest moment of my life. I got up. I stepped into it, man, and I stroked it. In fact, they're going to drill the concrete out there and put in those little brass baseballs out in the sidewalk. Raise your hand if you believe my story. Oh, buddy. Some of you are my favorite people. Or you're really dumb people. You see the difference between hearing something and seeing it. So let's say we took a whole busload of people from our church. And we were all together and Buck points at Pastor Van and Pastor Van goes and hits a home run. And by the time, by the time I'm rounding third base, man, the phones are going and we got it on video and, and we go to Fellowship Bible Church Facebook post is burning it up and everybody's looking and I'm on, I'm on the top 10 plays on ESPN and it's top 10 and everybody's watching it. They got a pastor out of the stands to put a uniform on real quick and he stroked the home run and he won the opening game for the birds and everybody's looking and it's the story of the decade in sports, right? This is just impossible. It never happened. That is way more possible than raising from the dead. And so if you hear that this guy rose from the dead, yeah, 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 yeah. You can say it, you can believe it, but it doesn't make it true. And so the Bible goes to great lengths to emphasize the importance of the eyewitness historical accounts. Let's quickly read in 1 Corinthians 15, because seeing is believing, isn't it? I know it raises question about the reliability of the witnesses, but I'm telling you, you can scrutinize that scripturally and historically, and the witness reports are indisputable. 1 Corinthians 15 says in verse 3, this is part of what we read today on the screens, It said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, 
And then that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. You see how twice it's said, in accordance with the scripture. The reality is the Bible said it, so it had to happen. That's how powerful the word of God is. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Peter, who was afraid of a little girl on the night of the crucifixion, on the night of the trial. Peter, who in Acts chapter 2, you can read it, is standing just a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, preaching and proclaiming that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he said, and we are witnesses of this fact. And it all happened right there in Jerusalem, right there. And that's Cephas, Peter. Letter A, Cephas is Peter. Letter B, and then he appeared to the 12. That's John chapter 20 when they were in the upper room. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then notice what the Apostle Paul writes here as he adds a footnote. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's he saying? This is me. Five years from now, talking to some new people at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm telling you, opening day, I hit a home run and I won the game for the Orioles. Go. Half my congregation was there. They got it on their phones. Go talk to them. They're still alive. I've done a couple of their funerals, but most of them are still alive. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, there was at least 500 people. This might have been at one gathering. But he gave ample opportunity to be seen and to be talked to and to be touched. And if you don't believe me, most of them, Paul says when he's writing to the Corinthian believers, are still alive. Go interview them if you don't believe me. Fourthly, he says, James... And then all of the apostles, I think that's a repeat of the 12. And then Paul himself. Now I got my Roman numerals missed up. I see number five isn't in bold and number, number four is really supposed to be a number six on the back page there. So one, two, three, four, five, six. Six is the credibility of changed lives. You need to listen well and listen quickly. What I'd like to suggest to skeptics that when you critique this story as to whether it's history or a hoax, I want you to see that this story is verified by the reality of the lives changed. Let me just click this off for you. The credibility of changed lives. First of all, we know a doubting disciple, don't we? His name was Thomas. We know that story so well. Remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples, as he said in 1 Corinthians 15, and he came to them. They were in an upper room hiding for fear of the Jews with the doors locked and the windows barred because they thought they were going to... These aren't guys who would go roust tomb guards and steal a body. They're hiding in a room, a bunch of grown men hiding. They are scared. Jesus appears to them, but Thomas wasn't there later. And Thomas says, when the disciples tell him, we saw the Lord, Thomas says, no, you didn't. You're hallucinating. You know what you put in your pipe, but you did not see the Lord. And our Lord appears to Thomas, remember, in John 20. He holds out his hands. He holds out his side. Thomas touches his hands, touches his side, looks at him, and he says, my Lord and my God. Secondly, and I think this is an interesting guy. We don't talk about him very much. But we have an unconvinced brother. This is James. We have an unconvinced brother. James, the brother of our Lord, not the disciple. 
You need to know, number one, that none of his, that would be Jesus, none of our Lord's brothers believed that he was the Christ. He had half-brothers. They're listed in Scripture, but in John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, which took place about six months before the crucifixion, it says in John chapter 7, verse 5, that none of his brothers believed that he was the Messiah. I can kind of understand that. I mean, who has less credibility than your siblings? Would you just shut up? You think you're so smart. You don't know nothing. And like my brother said to me all the time, I'm I'm warped because of it. When I wanted to know something, well, who's that? What's that? He would laugh and howl and point at me and say, if you're so dumb that you don't know it, I'm not telling you. So come on, man. That's brother talk, isn't it? His brother said, you're not the Messiah. Six months before the crucifixion, it's recorded in the gospel. They did not believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, number 2, the Apostle Paul singles out James as an eyewitness. We just read it. And James. James, we know from studying the scripture in Acts and Galatians, becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He becomes a strong leader in the church following the ascension of our Lord to heaven. Fourthly, according to Jewish historian Josephus, James was stoned to death in AD 62 for his faith in Jesus Christ. I ask you, what happened? He grew up in the same house with him. He did not believe in him. After the resurrection, he gave his very life for that gospel. That's James. We also have Saul of Tarsus, an enemy of the Lord. A committed enemy, Saul of Tarsus. Saul was an enemy of the church and a hater of Christ. He was a hater. It wasn't that Saul didn't believe in Messiah. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He was a Pharisee and he believed that Messiah was coming, but he didn't believe that this Jesus from Galilee was the Messiah. And he hated that concept. And in fact, he was responsible for the first martyr of the church, Stephen, in the book of Acts. And he went around rousting Christians, killing them, bashing in their storefront windows, burning their homes, and killing them if they followed Christ. Saul was the most unlikely person to ever follow Christ. He believed that Christians were following a false Messiah. That's what he believed, a false Messiah. Saul was transformed himself by an encounter with the risen Christ. You can read about it. It's an interesting read. His testimony is in Galatians 1, and it is in Acts chapter 8 and 9. It is also in the end chapters of the book of Acts as he stands before Felix and gives testimony. He recounts his testimony. He had an encounter face-to-face with the risen Christ, the most unlikely guy to ever, ever, ever follow Christ. I don't know if you're a skeptic, But I'm going to suggest to you that the greatest moment in the history of mankind is when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I'm going to believe that this is absolute history. Matthew 28 is, and it holds up to scrutiny. It holds up to simple logic. Will you stand with me? Keep your notes out. And will you read with me Romans 10, 9 and 10? Will you stand together? Look at your notes if you have them nearby. If not, listen closely. And let's read together what I wrote on Romans 10, 9 and 10. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important doctrine in all of Scripture. And one of the reasons for that is it is essential to believe for your salvation from your sin. You cannot go to heaven if you don't believe in the resurrection. 
Let's read together, shall we? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That was written by Saul of Tarsus, a hater of Jesus, after he became the Apostle Paul and in an encounter with the great resurrection. Are you ashamed of this gospel? Are you embarrassed of the resurrection story? Does it encourage you and fill you with hope? Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the simple plan of salvation that we understand that Jesus Christ, the God-man alone, was suited and fit to go to the cross to bear our sins, that we can look to him and live. By admitting our sinfulness, we receive his righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Thank you for the wonder and the marvel of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you strengthen us in our belief? If there's skeptics here and critics, would you please open their eyes to truth? Would you help us as your church, as Paul said in Romans 1.16, to never, ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. Strengthen our unbelief. Strengthen us in our faith. Help us to live faithfully now another week as we go with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.